Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geeks, Geezers, Googleization. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. I'm Ira Wolf. And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We're the voice of the most important conversations on the future of work that are confronting business leaders and people today. And our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the ever-changing convergence of business, technology, and people. This episode of Geeks, Geezers, Googleization is sponsored by... Why Institute, your personal and professional GPS for a meaningful life and purpose-filled career. You'll hear more about the Why Operating System and the Why Institute in just a few minutes. Jason, it's great to be back. We've been off for a few weeks while I've been on tour and trying to, to deal with a lot of personal things, but also dealing with conferences, future of work. But I'm really excited about today's episode. For starters, we definitely can use all the help we can get when it comes to storytelling. I've been talking about the consequences of a perfect labor storm for 25 years. And it surely seems after spending five weeks on the road that a lot of people weren't listening. But more than that, I found this tidbit of information about our guest today, Susan Linder, when prepping for the episode. She has a keynote called Impactful Storytelling for Employee Engagement. So here's the description. It provides your leaders with the specific tools they need to engage their teams through authentic storytelling that inspires employees to become more involved and engaged at work and to spread the word about their amazing workplace. Having just come off the five weeks of going everywhere from Pennsylvania to California, Impactful storytelling seems to be in high demand, but short supply. So Susan will be joining us shortly. But first, here's today's Perfect Labor Storm segment. This is where on each episode, we focus on a surprising, disruptive, worrisome trend that we believe you should know. Today's Perfect Labor Storm is thanks to our good friends, at Avanti, who released their 2023 Everywhere Workplace report just a few days ago. According to Gallup, less than one-third of the workers in the U.S. and Europe indicate their company actively involves its customers in improving products and services. That same report indicated that fewer than 40% of workers reported their managers being interested in their ideas. A survey by PwC found that 75% of workers believe that innovation is key to their job satisfaction. But that same survey indicated that companies that invest in workplace innovation see an average increase of 5 to 10% productivity. But in line with that, if you think that quiet quitting is over, and this comes from the new Avanti report, you might want to check this out. There are still one in three office workers under the age of 40 who admit to quiet quitting, and more than one in four are considering leaving their jobs in the next six months. And when it comes to why they quit, 40% say lack of motivation, 40% say burnout, 38% say they feel taken advantage of, and 30% 
say they do not feel engaged. So it seems to me that there's an opportunity for organizations to both create and tell a very different story if they are to succeed in the future of work. No doubt about it, Ira. I mean, those those statistics are pretty alarming. And the other thing, too, is we don't often discuss innovation and the government in the same breath. But something interesting happened just last week here in the United States. The White House released a fact sheet that outlined three actions to promote responsible American innovation and artificial intelligence. And this is become, is coming to the top because of concerns around protecting people's rights and safety. And so those three actions that the White House outlined around innovation and artificial intelligence included, number one, new investments to power responsible American AI research and development. Number two, public assessments of existing generative AI systems. And number three, policies to ensure the U.S. government is leading by example in mitigating AI risks and harnessing AI opportunities. So all of that to say, not only are there some innovation concerns within companies of many times employees saying that their ideas may not be welcome, but now we also, in, in the thrust of all this AI disruption, the White House is now getting involved to help develop effective practices around AI innovation. And of, of particular concern in that report that they pointed out are threats to inclusion and massive unemployment. And it isn't hyperbole to say that because of this, we're experiencing the biggest innovation event in human history with the advent and proliferation of AI. And as has been the case, with it seems like all other innovations that have gone before it, there are those who herald AI as a step toward either utopia or dystopia. What we make of it has everything to do with the innovation stories that we tell. Will we share stories of fear and dread, or will we share stories of optimism and hope when it comes to AI? Well, we're going to dig into that today because we're lucky to have joining us the world's leading expert on innovation storytelling. Susan Lindner. So here's a little bit about Susan before we bring her on to help us sort through all of this together today. Susan Lindner is the founder and CEO of Innovation Storytellers, a leading innovation storytelling consulting firm. She's a highly sought after keynote speaker, workshop leader, messaging strategist, storytelling coach, and the leading expert in the world on innovation storytelling. She speaks at global conferences, consulates, and trade organizations. She's worked with C-level leaders and teams from over 60 countries around the world and at Fortune 100 companies like GE, Corning, Citi, AT&T, Arm & Hammer on their innovation storytelling strategies. The result? Those innovation leaders become incredible storytellers who go on to change the world. She's driven to ensure every breakthrough idea reaches its finish line through these powerful stories that connect to every listener and power that brilliant idea forward. So without further ado, let's give a warm Googleization Nation welcome to today's guest, Susan Linder. Listen to that. I feel like some kind of sports ball superstar. Right? Ready to score some goals and slide on the turf and everything? Absolutely, Susan. <laughs> We're thrilled to have you. And obviously, just like we talked about, we've got a lot to unpack together today because there's a lot of disruption, a lot of innovation going on in the world. But before we get into some of those details, let's start here. Tell us about your story of how you became the top innovation storyteller in the world, because I was blown away when you shared it with me, and I think our listeners will too. Yeah, so for me, it all started in 
rural northern Thailand, right on the border with Burma, we call Myanmar today. 1994, I was working for the largest nonprofit organization in Thailand, working in brothels. My job was to help sex workers and their customers not contract or spread HIV. And at the time, the red light district that I was assigned to work in had already shut down because most of the sex workers and their customers had died from HIV. In fact, one in six sexually active people where I lived were HIV positive, and there are about three AIDS funerals a day. So it was incredibly tangible, the urgency and immediacy of needing to fix this epidemic that was just taking over taking over the country and particularly the province I was working in. And so we tried some, and the Ministry of Public Health tried really hard to fix this problem. And it started with fear as the prevailing concept, giant billboards all over the highways that said, get AIDS and die, which were fostered with these giant pictures of hungry ghosts that would terrorize your family after you had passed away because they didn't help in stopping you from contracting HIV. So I got to say that campaign incredibly successful for the first six months until it wasn't. That shock and awe campaign worked for a while, but then when people saw that they weren't getting HIV, they went back to their old ways. How many of us continue smoking, drinking, overeating, not exercising because we think that epidemic, whatever it's causing, isn't going to come to us, right? And God knows public health leaders have tried lots of different stories to get us to change our behavior, (laughs) right? So this is constantly a work in progress. And if you're a corporate leader trying to change someone's behavior inside the corporation is just as challenging. But for me, recognizing that the story that we were telling, that one of fear and frankly doubling down on it for the next six months, making even scarier posters, it worked for a while again until it didn't. We needed to find something more sustainable. And that's when I realized since the condom itself is 10,000 years old, if you can imagine, right? We have early archaeological evidence that the first condoms or evidence of the first condoms are 10,000 years old. That was the innovation that we were working with, right? No vaccines, no medicines, no nothing. That was our super tool. And so in addition to running each morning and handing them out in the markets, my nickname became Condom Girl to all of my neighbors. (laughs) But we knew we needed a different story. And everything for me changed as an anthropologist when we started interviewing sex workers, customers, and the, the women who owned these brothels. What would it take for you to become the hero of this story? What would change if you were the hero of this story rather than the victim of it? or the perpetrator in some cases, depending on how you looked at the participants in this triangle. And instead of just wanting to make money, have a good time and survive, these three groups came back and said, I wanna be the emblem of my community. I want to have the cleanest brothel in town. And the customer said, I wanna be the protector of my family. I wanna ensure that my wife and my unborn children are not infected with HIV. And the sex worker who was seeing about eight customers a night said, I want to be in charge of my own destiny. And now that last one we could fix. So we turned sex workers into entrepreneurs. And this girl from the Bronx was teaching chicken raising, pig pig raising, and duck raising, not to mention secretarial skills and a whole bunch of other skills to get women out of the sex trade 
And with that program in place, we saw infection rates drop pretty precipitously. And it re we realized it all started by telling a different story. How can we make the listener the hero of the story? And what I came to find in doing my work today is if we want people to change, we have to put them as the listener of the story at center stage, not the tech, not the cool new process, not the new gym that's being built in the, in, in the uh, office. It's about making them the hero. What will make what will make them the center of the story? And that, that for me changed everything. And Susan, what's fascinating about that as I hear you, you share that story is I think my perspective is I think we have a lot of leaders right now who they, they are being the hero. They want to act like the hero, but they think they need to play the villain in order to be the hero, such as the more I operate with a heavy fist, I mandate everybody comes back to the office we're going to go back to the old ways of doing things, that that's how you lead in times of a crisis or times of change. Are you seeing those things? And what would you share with those leaders to share a different perspective in terms of what actually gets results? Well, let's talk about where we are. Like my, my thing about storytelling, you're never going to be a great storyteller if you're not first and foremost a great listener. And if you don't know what motivates behavior and is the underlying emotion with your employees of what's hitting them at the moment, then no story that you tell will land. So, you know, in, in anthropology, we call it appreciative inquiry. I want to understand what makes you better when I listen, right? I'm going to ask the questions about what would enhance your life, what would make things better, what are you scared of, what things will go wrong. So appreciative inquiry allows me to ask all the questions about what's motivating my listener, about the story of change that I have to bring. So context, the next is listen first, then it's context before content. Before I ever start telling a story, where does my listener find themselves right now? And so I don't know if this is a term that you and your listeners are familiar with or use regularly, but it's VUCA. Are you familiar with this state of mind? This anxious, driven state of being of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. That's where most employees and most managers are today, don't you think? Absolutely. Wrote a book on it. There you go. <laughs> that's, what re that's what Googleization is. It's about VUCA. And so, you know, when we remind ourselves as compassionate and empathetic leaders that people are living in this state of VUCA, right, right of like living on a trampoline, how do we tell a story? that addresses that emotional state and then takes them to a different place. So the story, as and as storytellers, we recognized first and foremost, what is the emotional state of my listener? And if you're the kind of boss who's about to usher in change of any kind, know that you are adding to the VUCA. So we think innovation, disruption, how exciting. It really feels like stress and fear. For most listeners, the word change induces fear. And so now you're dealing with neurotransmitters like cortisol and adrenaline, right? And as storytellers, we recognize that those biochemical markers are going through the body, and now it's my job to counteract them. So I'm being a bit of an alchemist when I'm talking about storytelling because I'm not just thinking about the words on the page. I'm actually think about guiding someone through an emotional process and the words are really just the vehicle to guide people through an emotional place where they can be stable enough now to act on my words. 
Is that a little heady, a little sciencey for all of us today? But that's really what employees are experiencing. Huge dumps of cortisol and adrenaline every day thinking about, God, I don't even want to open my inbox today. So that leads into where I just came from. I have literally four weeks on the road talking to a lot of different audiences, a lot of different people. And then at the end of, and I think you answered this, but at the end of every conversation, someone come up and say, can I get your slides? And they always show one slide about the demographics and, and, we're, in, and we're in trouble. Our working age population is, is absolutely shrinking and our, our overall population is growing. So as, as, especially as an older baby boomer, extremely worried about who's going to be taking care of me. Having and Jason's experiencing now with that with his parents, and I just experienced it with, with my mother, you know, with caregiving and hospitals and, and long waits and, and all that stuff. But the one question that came up was, how do we convince, you know, and again, it's what story do we tell, but how do we convince, how do we persuade our older managers that they need to manage? differently. They need to treat people differently, re- regardless of what generation it is. And going back to, to what Jason had said about mandating people back to the office. I love the, 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 what you shared about making them the hero of the story. You know, how do they save the workplace? What's their last living legacy before they retire of how do you make them comfortable? Mm. So I mean, what I guess beyond just telling them that they can be the hero of the story, what comes next? I mean, yeah. how, do you, how do you guide them through that process? Because I know most of them, if we start talking about, well, we can impact their cortisol levels and their adrenaline, they're going to glaze over and that's the end of that story. So what are, <laughs> what are practical tips that we can use to help them become the hero of that story? That's so good point. So here are five steps that I want to give your listeners today to think about how to do that. So in addition to being an anthropology major in college, I was also a religion major. And I was mostly fascinated by how the prophets were able to move the word around the world without the help of Twitter, right? How do they do it? Because the greatest viral storytellers of all time were the prophets, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, Moses, right? These are the folks who were able to spread stories that frankly, the rest of us are still telling 2,000, 5,000 years later. How did they get us to do that? How did they get us to keep telling these stories? And so I started to break down the storytelling habits of these prophets and thinking about how our corporate prophets, that's prophets, P-H-E-T at the end, right? Not prophets, could actually get us to that place. How could we assume that mantle and get other people to tell our stories for us? And so when I started to break it down, here's what I found. Step number one was talking about our shared history is reminding our listener that it's not just about the change that's happening now. In fact, I need to reinforce where we've been and how far we've come. So, and I want to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly about our industry, our business, our department, the challenges we're facing at the moment. We start with a shared history. And if you'll notice, none of the prophets actually gave up their old faith. They just talked about adding on the new. And this is a process that we call breadcrumbing in storytelling, where we take the big steps, the big strides, and we remind ourselves of just how far we've come and what we're actually capable of doing, even in the midst of volatility and change. So step one 
is what is the story of our shared history? And sometimes it starts with something as easy as, why did you come to work here? What do you love about working here? What are some of the challenges we face together? What do you think we can do together moving forward? That's shared history. So that's step one. Step two is looking at the values. If I'm a leader, I ask myself, why did people come to work here? What are the core values that are inherent in the story? So is it persistence, perseverance, innovation? Is it value? What are those things that bind us together as an organization that culturally we hold on to? Now, if I'm trying to create change, those old values may not be sufficient to get us to the new place. So next I ask myself, what are the new values that need to be part of this culture? And if I look at the prophets, I ask, I take a look at, you know, the shift from Judaism to Christianity with Jesus. What did it take to change a culture of an eye for an eye to turn the other cheek? What does that shift look like? Well, it starts with a really good message like the one I just shared. But how do we how do we get people to give up old values that don't serve us anymore and replace them with new values? You need to be intentional about that. And this is where the this is where the story comes in is around the great message. So in this case, think about what it is that you actually need the listener to think, to feel, and to do. And when you know those three things, then you can think about what's the message I need to draft in order to people get people to think differently, do differently, and feel something that they haven't felt before that will move them into action. Because we're not inspired to move or change based on thoughts or, or simple facts or three bullets or an Excel spreadsheet. We need to engender the conversation with emotion. So think about what you want someone to do when you're done talking. In order to make that happen, you have to think about how you need to make them feel to get there. And then the other two steps are, who are your early adopters? We know that user-generated content is more trusted, more shareable, and more visited by others rather than the corporate leader saying it themselves. So you need to get those 12 apostles, or if you're the Buddha, 20 folks you know, that you wind up taking into the forest with you. Sometimes the biggest skeptics are your greatest advocates. So who are your early adopters who will help spread the message for you? People who really take it in and feel it, and you find them repeating it. Those are your people. And then lastly, what's the viral language? So we need something that, you know, read my lips, no new taxes, right? Or da-da-da-da-da, things that's going to be really memorable for us. I didn't even have to say a story, right? So what is the viral language that will spread through the organization? And, you know, Stanford's done the research for us. A story is 22 times more memorable than just facts alone, than just a policy document or a process shift alone. You need the story for people to take it in, feel it emotionally, and share it with the next person. So get the story. (laughs) I love it. And the tie-in there is, I'm loving it, Susan. You finished your (laughs) jingle that you shared there. Something that that you shared there, there there's so much good in there, but one that really stuck with me, you were talking about with the prophets, you know, from the move from from Judaism to Christianity, getting them to move away from eye for an eye to turning the other cheek. Metaphorically, it feels like we're kind of in the midst of one of those moments Mm -hmm. when it comes to work's place in our life and, and how are we going to inject artificial intelligence into all of this? And understanding what that looks like, are there going to be 
people that lose a lot of quote unquote their traditional jobs that they've had and are going to have to reskill and learn some new things in order to work alongside AI. And so as we get ready to head into this break, just want to put that in for some context, because when we come back, let's start taking a lot of those analogies you just shared of everything that's going on right now, the VUCA that you and Ira mentioned, we're in the thick of it right now. What are some things that you're doing with leaders right now? What are some things you're seeing leaders actually do to help lead in this wilderness we're in right now that's really helping them thrive despite all of the disruption and the innovation and change? Let's dig into some of those things that you're seeing done by some of those specific organizations and people that are taking these learnings. And then we'll be back after the break here in just a couple moments. For most of us, change is freaking terrifying. And unfortunately, there's no app to adapt. That might change in the not so distant future, but for now, we're on our own. That means we can either accept our default future or reimagine our tomorrow. For those of you who choose default, good luck. Just remember, there's no pause button for change. You can't turn back the clock, and there's no get-out-of-jail-free card in this age of perpetual uncertainty. Like it or not, change will happen all around us. And that change is not becoming just more disruptive and frequent, but volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, or VUCA. Fortunately, you can make change work for you and turn it into your personal and competitive advantage. Reimagine your future to one in which you're living with purpose, you're happy, and you're growing, thriving, and flourishing. If you're ready to rewrite your next life chapter and regain control of your destiny in this never normal world, your journey starts here. Contact the leader in adaptability and making change work for you, your team, and your organization. Ira S. Wolf, adaptability.expert. There's a certain kind of coach who believes what we believe, who leads people to greatness, who gets people unstuck, who unlocks all of your passion. A coach who helps people discover what drives them to tap into their superpowers. That knowing your why is the first step to untapped potential, to focus, to breakthroughs. A coach who's looking for a better way. Are you that coach? And welcome back, everybody, to Geek Skeezers Googleization. We are thrilled to be welcome, or, or to welcome, rather, Susan Lindner with us today, our special guest. She's the top innovation storyteller in the world. And if you listen to the first segment, you already know why. Absolutely brilliant. And so, Susan, before we, we left that segment, we kind of teed up things where we want to know what's maybe the most powerful innovation story that you've been a part of or that you've seen happen inside an organization? Is there one that really sticks with you? Mm. You know, I'm, I'm working on one at the moment. I'm trying, I'm working with the uh, World Bank to turn Belgrade into the biotech hub of the Balkans. So this is my first, my first ever story focused on a country as opposed to a company or a technology. <laughs> so I feel like the influence of storytelling is spreading 
which is really gratifying after 20 years of, of doing this kind of work. But, you know, the changes that I see are, you know, it, a couple of things came to pass. One, I realized that those tasked with innovation are often given the shortest shrift inside of an organization because those people who are in charge of changing the world are oftentimes in the process of failing at it, right? So as we know, eight out of 10 venture capital investments fail, right? Innovations inside of large corporations fail and people are terrified of attaching their reputation or themselves to it, knowing that it may not get to its proper finish line. And sometimes just conveying the story inappropriately is part of that problem. I had the good fortune of working with a team of fractographers at Corning Glass. Now, I don't know about you, but I had never met a fractographer before and I didn't know what they did. These are the folks who study how glass breaks. Very important job inside of a glass factory. So they'll determine whether or not when your head hits the windshield, does it bend? Does it pop out? Does it break into a thousand little rounded marbles so that you don't die from the impact? These folks were in the process of creating a brand new glass and windshield that we had never seen before. And when I went up there, I said, great, show me the deck that you're going to use to present to the CEO and the board. And it was 59 pages. And the first two slides were diagrams at the electron level of sand. So it was the chemical formulation for the brand new sand that they had created. And they got into the weeds on, on that electron level discussion. But in the middle of that conversation, one of the fractographers became an aunt. Her sister had a baby. And so we started ooing on over the pictures that Amy was showing on her cell phone and then came back to the electron discussion again. I could feel my eyeballs rolling to the back of my head. I said, Amy, show me the picture of that baby again. Just imagine how those tiny little neurons are bouncing back and forth in that baby's brain. And think about how that pancreas is growing by leaps and bounds every single day inside of that baby. And those tiny little capillaries as they grow and expand and bring blood flow all the way through that baby's body. Imagine if we looked at a baby and described it that way. And the photographer, fractographers all kind of looked at me in horror and I was like, we're getting a little too granular with the sand story, aren't we? I'm like, yeah, just a little. So the compelling story of what happens to so many of us as we get inside of wanting to make change, advocate for change, or ask for new products and services is that we get caught up in either the granularity or the grandiosity. We have to make this change now because work from home is shifting. We have to make this change now because climate change, because economic analysis, we get really big. And in the middle, we lose out on the audience. So when I think about the greatest stories, that story wound up becoming, it was a windshield that this team was creating with this glass for Tesla. And it was pretty exciting because the story wind up shifting to sound like this. Imagine sitting in your self-driving Tesla, gliding through traffic on I-95. Imagine leaning back and watching the second half of Bridget Jones' diary or catching up on a couple of emails that you left in your drafts folder at work. Your 55-inch flat-screen TV has effectively now become your windshield. Your car becomes your entertainment and productivity center, and you can just relax and finish working on the ride home. So that shift from going from 59 slides and a CEO and board team that was completely lost to 
making that scenario human, relatable, emotional, tangible, and taking that slide deck from 59 slides to 10 was a huge shift in how the company decided to begin talking about its products and services internally so that everyone on the table could get their hands around it. And so big impactful stories like that and the request for $1.5 million to build that is dependent on the story. And it's especially true for leaders who are trying to create a future that the listener can't yet see. So what matters to the people sitting around the table? Maybe it's revenue, but maybe it's something more breakthrough. Maybe it's something more close to home. Think about what drives those stories for the listener. Maybe a brand new technology, a process, et cetera, means now I get to go home at 5.30 instead of 8.30. Maybe it means I get to go and watch my kid's soccer game on a Thursday night. Maybe it means I want to raise or a promotion in the next two years. And this shift, either back to the office or staying at home, will help get me there. So taking into account not just the hero, but what are the underlying behaviors and emotions that motivate people? That's going to be critical as we tee up changes to go into AI. And perhaps it's helpful. I just got back from three days in Chicago with the Society for Information Management, where I was keynoting their conference there. There was another speaker there with me who said that 1,200 new AI applications were launched in the last 60 days. 60 days! (laughs) For anyone to profess that they can get their arms around this thing right now would be insane. I, I think it's wonderful, a little bit funny that our government, given what you said, right, investments in AI, really keeping the risk factors down around around AI and the US leading that cause and you know generative AI research and where it's gonna take us and the risks associated with it. I think, I think the median age of our senators is what now? 68? Like I, it, it's chal- maybe higher, Ira, I think your, your motioning could be much higher. So you know, thinking about getting our arms around this is we are all a work in progress in doing this. And, I think the story is we keep going, we keep learning together. What's really important is getting really clear about what we need. And I'm concerned about these giant swaths of people going out of business, people getting new business. It has been the wave of technology is just accelerating at such a pace. It's hard for the human mind to keep up. Yeah, I think I'm surprised that it's only 1,200 new applications of AI over the last, because I, I think I, I probably have gotten all of them in my inbox. (laughs) (laughs) Poor thing. (laughs) Turn off Google alerts for AI app launches. That's what that means. Absolutely. (laughs) But that, and, and I, I, I just, this may be a little bit of a a detour, but I, I I think it's in kind of relate to what we talk about with, with AI. I mean, the, the number one industry, I mean, at least the top in the top three, that is going to be impacted by AI seems to be marketing, PR, HR, you know, everything we're talking about, you know, storytelling. (laughs) Well, that actually, that's my question. How is, how is that since you're in the thick of it and we're talking about AI and storytelling, how is AI going to impact storytelling? You know, I think for the better personally, I'm really excited about it. I think it's fantastic. And here's why. I was at an an event last week with some pretty brilliant folks. It's called the Samudra Leadership Trust. 
And these are folks gathered from across different industries, looking at everything from workplace to design and culture and, and catalytic change in, in our corporate life. And the discussion around the dinner table was for us to stop thinking about artificial intelligence and start thinking about augmented intelligence. If we can walk hand in hand with AI and think about how we as humans will be augmented by the technology, assisted by the technology, then we can decide to positively embrace this. Well, being aware of the risks, certainly there are, but how can we look at each of our particular job functions and say, how can I be better? How can I look at the different ways that AI will make me better and push down the menial tasks that are part of my day-to-day job, let AI handle that, and how can I begin to uplift and upskill myself so that my greatest human attributes shine in partnership with AI? And for some people, the highest level that we can aspire to can now be done by AI. So now the question says, how do I step up? How do I step left or right to see things in a different way? And it is an incumbent upon us. Like there, the part of human evolution that I find fascinating is how we always do. You know, so thinking about the new jobs that will be created, the new things we'll get to do, I would love it if AI can help support me in some of my historic research that I do in writing a story. Try to try to even watch a 10-minute YouTube video on the history of Serbia. I mean, you've got two popes, you know, dueling kingdoms, you name it. Like I couldn't follow it even watching a shortened YouTube version before I went <laughs> over there. That AI will help me digest this information faster is a godsend, and I'm grateful. Now, where do I have to upskill my creativity? So standing, and I think I can speak for you confidently about this, is that you have a growth mindset. I, I know, And I know Jason and I. So my question is, what do we do with at least the 50% of the population who has this fixed mindset, who mm-hmm. doesn't hear what you just said in the same way? It's that, well, I'm, you know, I'm only, I'm, I'm nearing retirement. I only, if I can only get, I, I heard this last night. I only have 16 more years until I can collect my pension. Okay. <laughs> so I hear it all the time. So, so how, you know, what's the story <laughs> or how do we make them the hero of their story to at least incrementally adopt a new skill? And maybe it's not become an expert in AI, but understand that if they don't adopt some of these new skills, or as we talk, is reskilling, upskilling, de-skilling. And I heard a great term the other day, skill retirement. <laughs> is that that we will still retire? And as a as a very old baby boomer, is as people would continue to say, why aren't you retiring? And it's like, well, I'm not my career. I'm not retiring, but I have retired skills over and over and over again. So mm. how do we do that? But again, my, my concern is we always speak in our bubble and we speak to people who love this stuff, but we still have a large segment of the population who owes a fixed mindset. And part of that, probably a whole other session we can get you back for is talking about the culture, but. Yeah. Well, you know, I think in a way we've been sold a bill of goods, right? As white collar workers, we thought we were safe, that the blue collar workers were going to be, you know, phased out because of robotics, industrialization, 
computers, right? You can go and order your ba-da-ba-ba-ba on an iPad when you walk in now, right? Yeah. Um, you don't even need to speak to a human. And yet someone still needs to be flipping burgers, although I know they're making, you know, mechanized pizzas and they're baristas, you know, in airports now that are just one robotic arm. But I was I was delighted to see one of the Boston Dynamics dogs pass out after 20 hours of working straight on a factory floor. <laughs> I was like, yeah, there's still hope for us humans who are dedicated to something larger than filling an order. But, you know, I think the way that I would love to hear labor unions talk about this is the plan we're going to put in place for our workers. We're taking this seriously. I would like to hear about, you know, organizations that are truly dedicated to their people saying, we want to embrace this and we want to do it together with our teams. So getting people on board with the innovation and using the brilliant humans who are already in your organization to help set up SWAT teams and committees to say, let's look at this. Let's look at each department and say, where can we prosper? even faster than the competition by embracing this. Let's figure it out. And I think it's what companies did in the past. We just assigned it to a group of middle managers who would be responsible for that task. And they became inherently valuable for doing that. But now it's on us to all look at this together, department by department, corporate strategy together and say, we're shifting. And I want to throw a little bit back to labor and the union, say, let's get in here. Let's roll up our sleeves and do this. I think we can find a way forward. Yeah, for sure. And one of the things that is, is definitely occurring, uh, as you said, with blue collar, there was just a, a write up this morning, again, that the most in-demand jobs longer term are going to be the blue collar jobs. But those are now the skilled jobs. Right. Uh, as more and more of the professional white collar jobs. But this, we, we talked about this years ago, and I remember lawyers laughing, uh, you know, because my audience is coming from a healthcare world. A lot of professionals were often, you know, often paid attention to what I was saying. You know, dentists are probably safe. Some surgeries are probably safe. But I, the accountant said this will never happen. Radiologists said this will never happen until it did. But now it's, there really is almost no white collar job that's unsafe. And some of the most vulnerable ones happen to be engineers, architects, but the construct, the people in the construction trades are, are now becoming invaluable. They're becoming the essential workers and they are a a bit immune from the AI. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why. Yeah, until and until those self-driving vehicles and so forth can really make it to the streets. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, truck drivers and cab drivers and all those things are central to it. I still remember the original Uber business plan, which was we are preparing for the self-driving vehicle revolution. We are just using taxi drivers to understand routes <laughs> yeah. and gas efficiency. Yeah, and that I, still I will, hasn't come to pass. Yeah, I'll, and I'll just put this, because we, we've got to start a, a think about wrapping up here a little bit, and, and there's so much more we can talk about. But yesterday, I just found, I was going through some photos looking for something else, and I found this picture of, a slot, of, of an image that I had of a five megabyte hard drive being on a forklift, being <laughs> lifted into a vehicle for transport. So it was one of IBM's five megabyte, which by the way, just for give people reference, if you take a high resolution photo on your, on your smartphone, it's about five megabytes. That's if right. you shrink it down, it's, you probably can get two 
images on your smartphone rather than the couple thousand that most of us carry. Uh, it weighed more than a ton. It cost in today's dollar about $1.6 million to get that five megabyte, but that was 60 years ago. Wow. And somewhere, if we're projecting forward and, and not even counting the, the acceleration of change, you know, in 20 or 30 years, we're looking at things that we thought were crazy, that this will never work, like a, a VR headset, which is here. And, and I know Meta wow. is probably, you know, shot. But part of this challenge is, is that headset. Nobody's going to walk around with that headset. But we're going to look back at that headset as this five megabyte hard drive at some point in the near future. And I may, you know, I, it, I may be seeing it, but definitely the two of you will very likely, you know, see that at some point. And, and I think that's the part that we don't, that people don't get, you know, that we forget. And there's an entire frame of reference that, you know, having grown up in the fifties and sixties, that that's my baseline, but other people have no idea going, and something more recent is the rotary phone. You know, the, the, all mm -hmm. the memes out there of asking a, 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 even a millennial, but somebody under the age of 30 uh, or 40 to dial a, you know, to how do you call on a, on a rotary phone? And they can't do it. Yeah, it's amazing. And I mean, it, when you reference that Boston Dynamics dog, I know what video you're talking about, the one that collapsed. I actually posted something a couple weeks ago about that because Susan and Ira, for me, it raised the question of who's to say in 10 years when we're working alongside AI agents that those AI agents are going to have their own opinions about what it's like to work in that organization. And all of the CEOs who think, oh, well, we'll just replace people with robots because the robots won't complain. I think you're going to be oh, yeah. surprised in five to 10 years. And they may give it to you even more than the humans do. They may be less patient and less apt to put up with crap in the workplace and be like, I'm leaving. I'm going to go find another job and I can wait longer because I don't have kids. I don't have to go find food and stuff like that. So I know that probably sounds like science fiction, but it could be the the world in five to 10 years that we live in is we need to think about employee experience from AI agent perspective too, of what it's like to work there. Jason, I'll, t I'll take that just in one, in, in, in a different approach of how my mind works. My first thing, my first thought was, who fixes it? Who do you call? Because you, we, we're building it, but there's not enough people that understand we don't have enough AI mechanics or technicians to actually, when the dog goes down, it's going to be like, what do you do with your toaster now when it doesn't work? Who do you take it to when you throw it out? <laughs> so, yep. And yet this is going to have all the knowledge in there. It's going to be like our computer. What happens when our hard drive crashes? Where, how do we get that knowledge back? And then you can't find any techs to be able to do that. So I think there's a, there's a whole other, there's, a, there's an industry upon an industry upon an industry that will develop, but it's moving so fast. We haven't figured that out yet. That's right. And that, this is why we're going to have to have Susan back on to help us understand how we tell these stories in appropriate ways and how we're taking stories from AIs and combining it with humans about what it's like to actually work in workplaces. This is all fascinating, Susan. So we, we definitely want to have you back on again. We're going to get to our lightning round here, but so much more that we could get into. We're just running out of time today. 
But we do want to go through our lightning round segment with you here real quick so that we can get to know you a little bit better on a personal level. And of course, you've already shared some amazing stories about yourself. But let's just tee up a few more questions to get to know you a little bit better. So here we go. Are you ready? Ready. Let's do this. All right. Favorite band or song of all time? Oh, so good. I think I'm back in junior high with Duran Duran and Hungry Like the Wolf. I just saw them in concert last summer. They're amazing. <laughs> I was just going to say, it. they're back on tour. Yep. And we just saw Aerosmith is coming back in our backyard here in Indianapolis in October. So I'm excited to go hit that one up too. First time we've gotten Duran Duran. I love it. How about this one? What is the biggest pet peeve to you that other people do? Ugh, of other people, not other yeah. stuff. Could be stuff, Ugh. people. What's one of the things that just gets underneath your skin? Okay. So I'm a 20 year media trainer. And so I've conditioned people to get the ums and uhs out of their speech. So when I hear politicians that are rambling and I know they're searching for an answer they don't have, and they're, uh, mm, uh, mm, I just go ballistic on the other side of the TV, knowing that they're just fumbling for time. So that is my trigger for me of going, he or she does not have the answer. That is my pet peeve. I love it. Well, hopefully we didn't have too many ums and, zero. and stutters You're and stuff zero like that today. Ums. Awesome. And of course you didn't today either, which is incredible. We're not even going to have to edit this episode, Ira. That's how good it is. And then how about this one, Susan? If there's one person in history that you can spend the day with, who would it be? Malcolm X. Fascinating. Why? You know, so I was the girl who had posters of Duran Duran on one wall. And I had posters of Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, like revolutionaries on the other. And something you probably wouldn't know about me, but I hitchhiked through five countries and two war zones in Central America to join, join the fight with the Sandinistas back in the day. I chickened out, by the way, came back home and eventually wound up in Thailand. But Malcolm X for me was an inspiration about what revolutionary change looks like. And the ability to go from very humble beginnings to very tough beginnings, and some would say morally confused beginnings, to find a path out and to find a path to really thinking about what it is to claim and own one's true selfhood. And so I'm just, I'm fascinated by just the shifts that that one human being went through through the course of their life and how they ended up with a message of peace and unity even in the midst of really taking strong ownership and seeing himself as really central to his race and just an absolute hero of mine through all the controversy and what have you. And from a true crime perspective, I'm so frustrated about how his murder was handled. And so, yeah, so I'm, I'm fascinated by Malcolm X and I would want to hear all of it right from his mouth. Susan, thank you so much just absolutely brilliant on the lightning round. Thank you for sharing a little bit more of who you are and, and the story of what you're doing. The name of her company, founder and CEO, Susan Linder of Innovation Storytellers. The website is innovationstorytellers.com. We'd love for you to go there, check out the work that she's doing to help change the world for the better and make a better future for all of us and helping those innovation officers inside businesses make those ideas become a reality. Susan, any other ways that our listeners can learn more about you or get in touch with you? Well, because your audience loves podcasts as much as I do, if they want to tune in to the Innovation Storyteller Show, I interview chief innovation officers or people have an innovation mandate. 
about the stories they tell to get their innovation to the finish line. And sometimes the finish line is failure. But what are the stories that you have to tell to get innovation through the corporate meat grinder of America? And we just um, surpassed 100 episodes. So I know that's small fries compared to you guys, but people like the CIO of Corning and 3M and Adobe and, and folks like that. So I think there's a lot to, to learn from. And that's why I started the show is to learn from the greatest innovators of our time. Congratulations on that. Absolutely going to be dialing in and listening to those episodes. And I'm sure many of our listeners will be as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to send it over to Ira as we'll get ready to wrap up. But it's been brilliant, Susan. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely, Susan. And again, anytime you're welcome back, really appreciate it. I've got a million, million ideas that have just been generated, which usually happens in the last few minutes of the show, and then we're it's it's time to go. So, well, hopefully we can have this conversation online, but also offline. And I wish you the best of luck, and, and thanks very much. Thank you. Well, Ira, I wrote a book over here. What were some of the, the main takeaways for you from Susan today? Well, I, real quickly, uh, I think, you know, again, one being uh, trying to avoid doing a lot of presentations and trying to avoid, you know, the, the 40 and 50 slide PowerPoints. You know, the other day I narrowed it down to 10 and I only got to five and told a story rather than reading off the slides. But I, I, and she captured this so articulately, granular versus grandiose, <laughs> from being, moving from granular to grandiose. And I think, you know, again, I don't know how many presentations you've seen in your lifetime, but I've seen far too many. And you get these slides that, that write a book and they, you get lost in the first slide and never recover. Absolutely. A couple others that, that stuck with me too was, this was early on. When she first came on, she's talked about appreciative inquiry, that that's how leaders should approach things with with folks inside the organization and context before content. Before you're trying to share the things that are in your head, understand the context of the situation, get to know that person so that you can then craft the communication in ways that will actually resonate and land with them to, to be able to make a difference. And then lastly, I just thought the whole segment when she talked about profits. And it was funny that she did it with, you know, we were talking about, it's not all about profits, P-R-O-F-I-T-S. And then she segued into the profits with a P-H, how they really, before there was ever such a thing in social media, obviously, they were able to get viral messages out on things and get people to take action. And just the many lessons that she shared with us and our listeners today on that, I think there's some brilliant takeaways there for all of them. But until next time, I'm Jason Cochran. We want to thank you, Googleization Nation, for tuning in today and listening to Susan share her wisdom with us. If you haven't liked and subscribed to the podcast, please do so. We're on all the popular podcast platforms. We're doing a lot more on YouTube now as well. So please like us on YouTube and Instagram for some amazing short video clips as well. And until next time, I hope that you stay well. And Ira, it was good to be back. It's been a few weeks. It has been a few weeks, and we'll be back next week live for another session. I'm Ira Wolf, and special thanks to the Y Institute for partnering with us and sponsoring this episode. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. And until next time, don't let the shift hit your plans. Mm-hmm.